Well, today in our passage, uh, Jesus has a profound offer to you and to me. I mean, it's profound, it's stunning, it's transcendent, and yet it's greatly ignored. And here's the offer that he has. Um, He is stating to us that God himself is willing to listen to you and to respond when you call to him. Now, I can't get people to respond to my emails because they're so busy. And yet God himself, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of all things, has stated that he is near to those who call upon his name. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, writes, Nothing is better adapted to excite us in prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. How does that strike you? I mean, mean, does this make you feel guilty because we're going to be talking about prayer? Does it... Does it cause you to marvel over this idea that God would actually listen to us when we won't listen to each other? I mean, does it cause you to feel a measure of hope that that God will move in response to your prayers? Uh, This promise that Jesus makes is intended to move us as a people into a life of prayer, and, and that this life of prayer Uh, would lead to effectiveness in your Christian life. There's a relationship between this life of prayer and the effectiveness that you're going to have and enjoy in the Christian life. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 7. This is incidentally uh, the last part of the sermon. The sermon ends here. Uh, We still have three more weeks to go, but there are Concluding warnings. So this is kind of the end of the sermon. Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus is talking about this effectual prayer. And this effectual prayer is going to be, he's going to explain it just using three components, three characteristics. The first thing is effectual prayer it's going to be persevering prayer. It's a persevering prayer. Okay, you see this right in verse 7, right? Ask and seek and knock. This, <clears throat> these are written in, the, in, in grammar, Greek grammar. These are present imperatives. That means that they're commands, and they're meant to be repeated. So he's saying, when you ask, ask and ask until you receive. And when you seek, 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 seek until you find. And when you knock, keep knocking until the door is open. Jesus is encouraging this ongoing, persevering prayer until God responds to you with the answer that he gives. Uh, But it's more than a command. It's also an invitation. It's a loving invitation. Jesus is speaking about God as a father, and he's saying, go ask him, go seek him, go knock. I, I mean, he's available. He's trying to minimize this timidity and hesitation that we have about approaching God. He's saying, no, 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 you won't bother him. You won't bug him to death. 
He wants you to pursue him. He's encouraging this perseverance in prayer by saying, go. He, he will not be bothered by you. But you also notice, ask, seek, knock, it's kind of in this stacking of commands. It's like in ascending order. You know, asking requires just a voice, but seeking requires a voice and movement. And, and then knocking actually requires a voice and then seeking and then finding and then knocking. And then knocking, by the way, that little, that little Greek word is a, really a banging or a pounding. In other words, there's an intensification of your perseverance. God, I'm pounding. God answers pounding prayers. He answers these persevering prayers. Now, this is, I think, where the rub is for many of us with prayer, is that we have trouble persevering, we have trouble prevailing in prayer. And many reasons why, really. Well, I mean, you know this from New Year's, right? We make these New Year's resolutions, and and we, we have the, it feels good to make a resolution. We feel like we've actually accomplished something. Uh, and then the first week, maybe two weeks, whether it's a, a, a physical goal or financial or spiritual, you know, you're doing okay, and then all of a sudden it begins to falter. And by the sixth, seventh, or eighth week, you kind of forget the, the goal you made. So why don't we persevere more? I mean, why do we struggle so much with persevering before God? Well, a couple of reasons I want to just raise with you and ask you to consider whether this might be why you or I struggle with persevering in prayer. Uh, Number one, I think uh, persevering prayer demands faith, right? You have to believe that God is able to actually do it. You have to think, does God have the ability or even the desire to move in response to what I'm asking for? So you have to have faith, and without faith, you give up the ship right away. There's no chance he's not going to give it to you. You just stop right away. So there's no persevering without faith. So when you pray, are you actively engaged in understanding if God is able to do it? Secondly, I think it it requires a degree of humility. Persevering prayer requires humility. I I mean, the nature of asking and seeking and knocking all kind of display a dependence, don't they? If you had it all, you wouldn't ask. If you knew everything, you wouldn't seek. If all the doors were open, you wouldn't have to knock. you just walk through. So it implies a dependency. The self-sufficient man does not pray because he has everything he needs. But the man who gets the report from the doctor that says, oh, by the way, we've discovered you have stage four cancer. You have three months left to live. There's nothing we can do for you. Well, that's a man that now knows how to pray, very perseveringly, because all other options are now gone. He is massively dependent upon God. That's why there's no fox. There's no atheists in foxholes because your life is at a place where you realize you just don't have it. And so you need something beyond yourself. So persevering prayer exists in the heart that is humble and the heart that is broken and needy. But last, I think this is the most important reason why I think we give up persevering in prayer. We don't understand divine delays. We don't understand why God would delay in answer to our prayer. Uh, God's, delays are, God's delays are never stingy. They're never unwillingness. God's not kind of up there with his arms folded, holding back. But I think there are good and biblical reasons why God will delay in answer to your prayer. Number one, I would say, it may be that you're not fit, that you're not ready for the blessing. 
You know, the Puritans used to say some of his greatest blessings are in his refusals. We're not ready to receive what we're asking for. We think we are, but we're not. And so his withholding is to prepare us. Perhaps there are other events that have to take place in your life preparing you for this mercy that will be given to you. Um, perhaps it's um, he may delay because uh, he wants to be God and not a butler. Can you imagine if you ask God for something and he gave it immediately? And then you ask him again and he gave it immediately. And then you prayed again and he gave something else immediately. I mean, God would be a gumball machine. He'd be a butler to you. I mean, you would stop seeing him as God and just a means to an end. You have certain needs and you're going to run to God and just ask him. And I think he delays sometimes to remind us that he, in fact, is God. I think, too, that, that sometimes... God delays to reveal perhaps the darkness of our own nature. Maybe the wrong-headed direction of our prayers. Maybe the bad motivation. You know what the Greeks used to say? The Greeks said this. If, God, if the gods want to destroy a man, they answer his prayers. Why? Because we often pray erroneously. We pray without thought. We pray thinking this is what we need, but a month later we realize, I'm glad I didn't get that prayer. How many times have you thought that? I'm thankful that God didn't answer that prayer. Those delays are beneficial for us. The delays also, I think, tend to make the answer sweeter. You know, as a parent, you often tell your children, you'll appreciate this more when you've worked harder for it or you've waited longer for it. That God delays sometimes to increase the sweetness of the joy that you have when he answers your prayer. So I, th- I think there are reasons. That, you know, he calls for persevering prayer. Effective prayer is going to be persevering prayer. And persevering prayer demands faith and it demands humility and it demands understanding of the delay. So what have you failed to persevere in with prayer? Uh, ladies, perhaps you've prayed for your husbands to lead. Have you given up on that prayer? Or, or have, you, have you stopped praying for your children to respond to your instruction? Men, have you finished or given up praying that your wives would invest as much in the marriage as they do in the children? Uh, Have you given up praying that that this fractured relationship is in no way can it be repaired? I mean, what have you given up persevering in prayer over? Can you not press God and begin asking and seeking and knocking him for this? That the door might be open? Let me remind you back a, a few weeks with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this pastor and uh, 20th century pastor in London. Uh, he raised this question, or he really raised this issue within the church. He said that we're very quick to trust in the work of Jesus for salvation, that we are saved by his work. Do you believe it? Yes, I believe it. Do you stake your life on it? Absolutely, I stake my life on it. I trust it. I trust his work to save me. But do you trust in the words of Jesus? So when Jesus says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open, do you really trust that? And is it evidenced in the perseverance that you exhibit when you pray? Because if, he is, if you trust him to save, can't you trust the words that come out of the mouth of the life that you're trusting? <clears throat> George Mueller, of course you know that name by now. I, I need to do a a biographical sermon on him because I reference him often. In his autobiography, <clears throat> excuse me, he was a man uh, who is really known to be a man of both prayer and faith. He prayed often and God moved greatly 
But he prayed for many things. We, we know him as a man who prayed and God would answer dramatically. But what we don't always know him about, uh, about him was that he was a man who persevered in prayer. And he didn't always get answers right away. Here's what he writes. He says, I am now in 1864 waiting upon God for certain blessings for which I have daily sought him for 19 years and six months. Still, the full answer is not yet given concerning the conversion of certain individuals. In the meantime, I've received many thousands of answers to prayer. I've also prayed daily without intermission for the conversion of other individuals about 10 years, for others six or seven, for others four, three, and two, for others about 18 months. And still the answer is not yet granted concerning these persons. And yet I'm daily continuing in prayer and expecting the answer. Be encouraged, dear Christian reader, with fresh earnestness to give yourself to prayer. You can only be sure that you ask for things which are for the glory of God. It's a man laboring. He's prevailing in prayer. He's persevering in prayer, even though the answer has not yet come. It in no way casts doubt on God's ability or desire to save. He continues to pray. So let me encourage you, effectual prayer will be persevering prayer. Ask yourself, where have you failed to persevere? Don't beat yourself up. Just pick up and start moving forward right now. But, but secondly, it's more than persevering prayer. To just persevere is more, uh, we need more than that. And, and you see in this verse 8, uh, you need confidence. The, the effectual prayer is confident prayer. But it's confidence in this fact, that God is a Father who dwells in heaven. That our confidence in God answering prayer is rooted in his fatherhood, his good fatherhood in heaven. Look with me at verse 8. He says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. I'm really thankful, by the way, that, that, that this prayer isn't for the spiritual, not for the pastor, the theologian. He says, For everyone, all of you, anyone who calls upon the name of God, for everyone who asks receives, who seeks finds, that's you. Every single person. Jesus is declaring the generosity of God in prayer. That all of you, as you appeal to God as your father, he will answer you. He, he will, you will find and the door will be opened. And look at the reason he gives us. He just doesn't give a statement here. He gives a reason why you and I can be confident in his prayer. Look with me in 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> he says, if he asks for a fish... Will you give him a serpent? Sorry, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give you give good things to those who ask him? He's drawing you to your own parenting. And by the way, you don't have to be a parent to understand this. You can be a child and understand it. But I mean, which of you really... Which of you parents, really, if, you're, if your child asks for bread, would give him a stone that he could break his tooth on? Or if he asks for a fish because he's hungry, would you give him a snake that would be either inedible or inappropriate to eat? And who, who of you would do that? I mean, you can ask yourself, would you ever do that? Would you mock a true need by giving him something like that? And so he's saying, how much more, even though you are evil? Now, notice, just for the humanists among us who believe in the inherent goodness of man, Jesus is recalibrating your approach to people. 
He's saying, you who are evil. He doesn't debate it. He doesn't provide evidence. He just states it. Humanity is evil. Doesn't mean we can't do good things. Doesn't mean we can't act in kindness to certain people in certain situations. He's saying fundamentally, as a people, we are self-driven and we are separated from God. That's a point that you need to grasp if you're ever going to understand mankind. And it's that point which makes this passage so strong because he says, if you are that way and you can still give good gifts to your children, then how much more will God give good things to those who ask? I mean, it's this, it's this, it's this lesser to the greater. If you can do it, I mean, how, who in the world would stand up here and think that God is somehow less capable than you to give us good things? It's incredible. God is by nature good. And so good comes out of him as good gifts. But you know this as parents. So, so for an example in my life, Rachel used to like it when I would go on these field trips when she was, you know, I don't know, third or fourth grade. And if any of you have been on field trips, you, you ride in that big yellow cigar with about 50 screaming children, it's a mild form of torture. <clears throat> and uh, they always say there's plenty of chaperones, you're the only one on the bus with all these kids <laughs> screaming. And uh, I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack, and so about the fourth or fifth um, field trip I took with her over the years, I realized that there were always more parents on the field trip than rode in the bus. So I thought, hmm, they're driving. <laughs> that was good. I picked up. So Rachel asked me to go to the power plant, which was, it felt like it was eight hours away. And I said, I'd love to go with you. I'll just drive and meet you there. She goes, oh, no, Dad, I really want you to drive with me on the bus. And I said, well, if I drive, I can get a donut. I can bring you a donut. <laughs> if though you who are evil, I'll get you two donuts. And uh, she had these pigtails and real sweet little dress and a purse. Dad, I love it when you sit on the bus with me and we ride together. And uh, so I was back in the yellow cigar box <laughs> driving with 50 screaming kids with 20 parents that were there with only two on the bus. And, uh, but but I, I, I just... When your child asks for something, you know how it feels to give good things to your kids. That becomes the paradigm for you to say, God even likes it more. And he gives good things. It's to build our confidence. Jesus is trying to draw the people into prayer. He's saying, persevere, because look, God is good. And he's your father. If you as a father and mother know how to do this, he much more than you. But not just the fatherhood of God. Notice how Jesus refers to him. He says, how much more will your father who is in heaven? Again, he, he roots God in, in glory and he puts him in heaven. And he's saying, how much more will God be able to give good things to you? In other words, Jesus is trying to raise our confidence in the capacity of God to give us these good things. God who is in heaven. You know, the heavens in Psalm 19 declare the glory of God. The heavens are showing God to be without measure powerful sovereign that there is nothing that god cannot do there is no task there's no problem there's no need for wisdom that you can run into that god will not be able to meet but not just the heavens don't just declare the power they also declare his eternality he has no beginning he has no end his kingdom will never be challenged it'll never be transferred it'll never be threatened 
but not just power and eternality, but also his wisdom. I mean, you look at creation and the order in which he has made things. His wisdom is beyond measure. There's no dilemma that you will face that you cannot get on your knees and appeal to a father who is in heaven, who is without measure. No one has ever been his counselor. No one will ever be his counselor. He is full of divine wisdom. So I think Jesus is trying to say, he's not only a father that you can approach, but he is wise, powerful, strong, eternal. He's trying to build up our confidence in God that you can appeal to him to engender us to be a people of prayer. So how confident are you when you pray? What thwarts your confidence? What diminishes your ability to really rest in that God's going to answer you? I think for some of us, I just don't think we forget. Excuse me. I think we just forget that he's our father. I, I mean, I think many of us just don't think about it. We just don't consider it. We don't meditate on it. We don't, we don't take this truth and respond to it. I think we just forget. And I'll tell you, I think this is the death nail to persevering confident prayer. If you don't see him as a father, you see him as a distant deity that is up there with a mind of his own, without a direct concern for you, it's going to be tough to prevail in confident prayer, I promise you. But if you know him as a father who loves you more than you could ever love your child, and as parents, we are limited intellectually and emotionally and financially and and, and in all kinds of ways. We want to provide for our kids. We can't. You know, the kids get older. They bring you tough questions. I don't know the perfect answer. I don't know what to do. Let's just seek God. I'm not sure what to do. But God never says that. He always knows. Another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, If you should ask me to state one phrase what I regard as the greatest defect in most Christian lives, I would say that it's our failure to know God as Father, as we should know him. So when we pray, I'm asking you to consider the fatherhood of God. But, but there's another reason I think we lose our confidence in God as Father. I, I think it's because he doesn't give us what we ask. So we pray for something, we think about him as Father, we ask for something, and he doesn't give it, and so we get frustrated, we stop. We don't have confidence. He doesn't answer our prayer. There's a lot of prayers I know you've asked for, and he hasn't given them to you. But I want to remind you that implicit in this parable is that kids will often ask for wrong things. Would you not agree with me? I mean, if a child asks for candy at 10 o'clock at night so he can go to bed with a nice you know, chocolate bar, you know... It, Is it not the responsibility of the parent to make sure to give good things even if the child asks for things that aren't good? You know, so when when one of my kids and their four asked for a BB gun, was I wrong to say no? You know, or, or a tragic example of this, in about six, seven years ago in the News and Observer, an eight year old girl took a car out for a drive, rolled it, and crushed her sibling in the car. When the police investigated it, the police asked, where'd you get the keys? She goes, my mommy gave them to me. She asked her mom, probably was bugging her mom. Mom just thought, just give her the keys for a minute. How do we look at that as a parent? And so don't let your confidence go down when God doesn't answer your prayer. Maybe take a step back and think, have I asked rightly? You know, is God still God? Am I asking him to be something he's not? 
You know, God determines what is good in our life, both for the trials and the joys in our life. But God is good, and he's going to give us what is good. He can't give us except that which is good because it's inherent to his nature to be good, even though it may be hard. I think another reason, and this is an important one, you to understand. I think another reason that our confidence tanks in the fatherhood of God is that we walk in sin. And we feel, we diminish our confidence in prayer because we feel so soiled over our selfishness and our sin. We feel inauthentic. We feel insincere. We feel like, you know, we're being a hypocrite to go to God. I just looked at pornography and now I'm going to ask God for grace to help give me wisdom on this business project. I can't do that. I'm, you know, and we take this goofy, self-righteous track, like I'm going to be self-righteous now and not appeal to God because I've just dipped in pornography. I mean, that's confused thinking at a minimum. I mean, God doesn't hear the prayers of perfect people. He hears the prayers of penitent people, people that repent over their sin. I mean, do you realize that for you to step back and say, I'm not going to pray until I clean myself up real quick, I do a couple nice things in ministry, and then I'm going to go back to prayer. We deny the gospel when we do that. We deny the work of Christ, who has washed us clean. God is calling for us to be penitent prayers. You can, be, you can have sinned and in confidence go to the Father. Just go penitently. Repentant. God, forgive me. Thank you for the cross. The cross is always central in our prayer, reminding us of how we approach God. So it's important to understand that you don't want to hesitate to appeal to God when you have sinned. You just want to repent as you walk towards the throne of grace. It's really, really important. So many times I've backed away, and I've felt myself self-atoning before I go back to God, and it denies the gospel. So for effective prayer to be part of our church and our life. It's to be persevering and it's to be confident. And your confidence is rooted, not in what you've done, but in the fatherhood of God as established in Christ. Now, this is for the Christian now, not for the moralist, not for the good person. You notice that he's a father to us. Now, I guess in a very general sense, God is father over all of creation. But that's not what we're speaking about here. There is an intimate relationship between father and son that God has with the believer. And that is not for everybody. It's very clear in, in John chapter 1. He says this in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Here's how we become children of God. Here's how we can appeal to God as a father. Not every single human being that is breathing can just say, oh, God's my father too. I'm going to appeal to him as a father. It's, you don't have that relationship. John says this, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. So that's a group of people. They have received Christ by faith. He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood. That means it just doesn't come as part of a lineage. Nor by the will of the flesh. Like I'm going to decide today to follow Jesus. It doesn't come by that. But born of God. In other words, God in grace sheds light upon the heart. The heart sees the sin in my life, but I also see Christ as one sufficient and able to save. I appeal to God for grace through the mercies of Christ, his substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel. And then, and then 
I'm washed clean from my sin, I'm given the Spirit, and I'm adopted. And this is what we see in Galatians chapter 4. It's just laid out perfectly. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law. And by the way, we were in guilt under the law. So he's going to redeem us under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God sends his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we become a son or daughter, appealing to God as father because of Christ. And Christ alone makes us sons. And that's why we can appeal this to God saying, Abba, Father. It's the same word, Abba, that Jesus uses in the passage we're studying in Matthew 7. That's what brings that relationship of father to son or father to daughter. So that's effectual prayer is the persevering, confident prayer rooted in the fatherhood of God. There's one last thing. And it's kingdom-minded prayers is what he's calling for. Notice with me, if you will, he says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be open. That's a pretty cool verse to put on a little promise vest or those little promise cards you have from Scripture. You can take it right out and shoot anything you want. Ask, is he giving us a blank check for petitionary prayer? Is he saying, hey, the world's mine, the world's yours. Ask anything you want. Just go ahead, try me in it, test me in it. Is that what he's saying? A lot of people have thought so. They've prayed for Rolls Royces, bigger houses. They've prayed for all kinds of stuff. And then guess what? When they don't get it, they look back at God and say, yeah, you can't trust the Bible. Yeah, God's not loving. He's not my father. They've taken this passage out of context. There's a context here that we have to be sensitive to. Otherwise, how do you know what to pray for? I mean, how do you know what to ask for? Do you always know the right thing? I don't. I need the context to tell me when he gives such a bold promise to me, I want to treat it within the context that it's given. And that's where I think verse 12 comes in. This is where I want you to gird up your minds with me for a second because I'm going to try to explain Something that you may not have heard, maybe you have. It's not easy to understand. Look with me in verse 12. He says, okay, if you have an ESV, the word is so. It's really the Greek word. I think it's better, trans, better translated, therefore, which is what the NASB has. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, you know this is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But notice what Jesus does. He says, therefore, so you always ask what it's there for, of course, and it's always looking backwards, what has been said prior to it, therefore. Okay, in light of this truth, 7 to 11, therefore, he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But look at how he ends it. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, just about every scholar looks at verse 12 as a summation passage. It's the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of that concluding summary. And it makes sense because it forms an inclusio. An inclusio is a grammatical term for a bookend. If you were to go back with me to chapter 5 of 17, you're going to see the same exact phrase. Jesus says, I've come, what? Not to abolish the what? the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. Here we have the law and the prophets. So it's an inclusio, it's a bookend. 
So when you see that kind of phrase, then it's including everything, including when it started. So when he says this, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. He says, this is a summation of what I've just taught you in the Sermon on the Mount. That verse 12 is a summation. So when Jesus came, let me read it to you. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, now hang with me here. When we studied that passage months ago, I said to you that the rest of the sermon is explaining what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees, their righteousness was external conformity to the law. So if they didn't kill anybody, they've obeyed the commandment to not murder. Or if they didn't commit adultery, they've obeyed that commandment. But Jesus says this, beginning right after that passage in Matthew 5, he says this. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, don't be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust after another woman. Don't look at another woman with lustfulness in your eyes. So Jesus is saying, external conformity to the law was never God's intention. It was always internal conformity from the heart, out of love for God. So here's what I'm saying. What are we asking for and seeking and knocking? We're asking God for grace to live in the sermon that he's just taught us. All the things that he has said over the course of this whole sermon. Do you think you can do the Sermon on the Mound out of your own power and strength? Even though a child of God, he's saying you have to ask, you have to seek, you have to knock. I mean, to walk in this way, this is how we live. It's through prayer. This is why John Calvin again says, the principal exercise which the, which the child of God has is to pray. For in this way, they give proof of their faith. In other words, Jesus has given us a sermon on the mount. These are the instructions, the etiquette for the child of the kingdom. This is how we live as children of God. And Jesus, at the end of the sermon, saying, if you want to live this way, you've got to pray. You've got to seek him. You've got to ask him for grace. You've got to knock on the door. So specifically, let me tell you what I mean by this. So I've been doing this all week now in preparation. So I went back to verse 21, and I said, God, give me, give Christ's covenant grace that we would not harbor bitterness and anger in our relationships. God, give me grace that... I can walk in forgiveness. I can be a peacemaker. I'm not going to harbor anger. I'm not going to continue to grind the axe over what that person said to me. If I don't have grace, I'll grind the axe and feel righteous in doing it. So then I go next. God, give me grace that I would have eyes for Carol, to be pure in my mind, that I wouldn't look at a woman lustfully, that that, that I would think, I would think, Pure thoughts. I, 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 would, I would move away from seeing people as objects for my pleasure, but that they're image bearers of God, that I'm praying for that. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. And go to the next section. 
just the next verse. Marriages. Remember how we talked in, 20, in 31 to 32, we talked about marriages. That we would have God-centered marriages. I'm praying that I would be a man that leads my family well, that Carol would respond well to my leadership, that I would serve her and sacrifice for her. I'm praying that for you. I'm asking for grace. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. Give us good, whole, right, godly marriages. Okay, the next part that we taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Truth in speech and overcoming this deception. God, help me to speak today in a way that's truthful and honest. It's not, self-decept- it's not deceptive or self-promoting or, or just shading the truth so that I look a little bit better than the person next to me. I have to ask for grace. Y- you guys, you know all men are liars. We all struggle with that. So how are you going to begin letting your yes be yes and your no be no apart from the grace of God that is yours from your Father who is in heaven as you seek him in prayer. Or continue to get on the list with me. The extension of forgiveness to those, who is, to those who have hurt us, that non-retaliatory spirit. You know, if you struggle with that, are you praying? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? Or how about loving your enemies? Remember Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I say love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Is, are, people push, are people persecuting you? Are people troubling you? Have you prayed for them? Have you asked for grace? that you would find within your heart the ability by God's Spirit. And then we can just go down the list, praying for the kingdom. How about stewardship of money, generosity? Are you naturally generous? Have you increased in generosity as your income has increased? And as your faith has increased, have you given away more? Why not? You seek, ask, God, help me to be generous. Help me not to hoard. Help me not to feel that my lifestyle has to increase as my income increases. Or how about fear and anxiety? You know, we talked about that in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. God, help me not to be anxious. Help me cast my cares upon you. Again, I think Jesus is saying, ask and you're going to receive. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and the door will be open as it pertains to these things so that we can live a life that demonstrates the kingdom. I'd at least propose that to you to consider. Otherwise, as you read back through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think we have a prayer, so to speak, to do it, other than the prayer that we have. So with that in mind, let me pray for us as we prepare for this table. We want to be a church of effectual prayer. It is a persevering prayer, a prevailing upon God until he grants to you the answer. It is a confident prayer, a confidence in the goodness of God's fatherhood, bringing what is right into your life, not meeting your demands specifically, and then their kingdom-minded prayers. By the way, Matthew 7, 7 to 11, isn't meant to speak about every facet of prayer. So I haven't touched on praying for our personal needs and stuff like that. Is that a place in the kingdom? Absolutely, and other scriptures address it. So I'm not trying to say this is the summa theologica of prayer. I'm not trying to say that. I'm simply saying that in this passage, in this context, this is what it leads us to. So um, let me pray for us, and then I'll orient us to the table, and after that I'll call the servers and the elders forward. But let me pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you give to us in declaring a word that is understandable And Father, it is helpful and it's good. And I pray specifically in the name, and I come to you in the name and the merits of Christ, 
that you would transform us as a church in our understanding of you as a father, as a good father, as a loving father, as a powerful father, as a wise father, and that while we have trouble loving ourselves, and while we have trouble understanding how you can love us, Father, break through our inability to rest in this truth that is now ours because Christ has cleansed us and drawn us to you. And Father, I pray for those here today that do not know you as a father, that would long to have you as a father, that they would have the the courage to speak to you, to come speak to us about these issues. But for those Christians who have existed in the faith for 10, 20, 30 years without growing in an admiration and love for the truth that you're their father, would you break through and cause your grace to overwhelm them, opening their eyes, opening their hearts to see the unfathomable love that you have for us in Christ. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.